Hello, we are the Oxford Society for International Development and welcome to our new podcast series. My name is Priyan Salvakumar and I'm the events officer for Africa in my second year of studying politics, philosophy and economics. I'm delighted to be joined today by Matthew Page, an associate fellow at Chatham House, also known as the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Matthew is a graduate of St. Hugh's College, Oxford, where he read PPE. He served as the Deputy National Intelligence Officer for Africa in the American National Intelligence Council and has spent years working with various U.S. intelligence agencies sharing his deep expertise of Nigeria. He now conducts research and works for various think tanks including Center for Democracy and Development in Abuja and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Today on the podcast we'll be discussing the Nigerian political climate through a unique lens and exploring a day in the life of a Nigerian politician. Matthew, thank you so much for joining me today, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being on the show. All right. So can you talk a little bit about how you got interested in Nigeria, how your academic and professional career led you to where you are? Sure. Well, as you mentioned in your introduction, I, uh, I studied PPE at uh, St. Hughes, and uh, afterwards went to King's College London, where I got a master's in war studies. I had always been interested in sort of strategic affairs. Uh, I focused more on the the politics side of my PPE degree, um, and also uh, took a lot uh, took a few papers on uh, ethics, and so it was a natural fit to sort of look at um, the uh, the issues of of conflict and conflict resolution. And uh, the time I finished at, at university, it was sort of 2000. So this was just in the run-up to, you know, September 11th, 2001. Um, the world uh, was sort of ironically in a similar position to where it was now in the, in the sense that the focus then was great power competition, especially between the U.S. and China. And so at, at King's, I focused on uh, naval strategy naval warfare in the uh, in the eastern Pacific and the in the uh, western Pacific I should say the East China mm-hmm. Sea and so um, after I finished up my program at King's I applied for jobs all over the place like every good university graduate does I, I was looking for sort of my to get my foot in the door somewhere um, and use the the um, the expertise and the know-how that I felt like I had had gotten at King's and uh, was finally picked up um, by the Marine Corps, the U.S. Marine Corps, their intelligence um, support organization. And uh, when I arrived on my first day, I thought, well, you know, I have this background in in East Asia, you know, conflict and warfare. And when I showed mm-hmm. up on my first day, you know how it is. They said, well, you know, we have a gap on West Africa, and so you need to to do that. And I said, well, you know, I wrote my right. I wrote my master's thesis on diesel electric submarine warfare and I don't see a submarine, you know, anywhere to be found in this in this region. But like with anything, I mean you you adapt, you know, if you're intellectually curious, you you sort of get into a subject pretty quickly and that's how I found West Africa. So within the space of a year I knew that this was really um, a fascinating, complex, understudied, underappreciated um, area of the world. Uh, I started in 2003, and um, for those of you that may know, that was sort of at the tail end of um, fighting in Sierra Leone, which which British troops were involved in. Uh, it was the uh, Liberian Civil War. Uh, the U.S. Marines were actually 
you know, deploying to uh, Liberia at that time, and I was providing intelligence support to them. So it was it was a fascinating time to be working on those issues. But over time, it became obvious, right, that Nigeria is kind of the elephant in the in the room when it comes to working mm-hmm. on West Africa. Um, as many of your listeners will know, uh, you know, Nigeria is the most populous country in in Africa. Um, it is on track to being the third most populous country in the world by 2050. It's the largest, you know, economy. And back then it was a major oil exporter to Western countries, particularly the United States. That is less so now. Many of its oil exports go towards uh, Asia. Um, but but at the time it was um, it was very strategically important to the United States for that for that reason. Mm-hmm. So um, so yeah, so that began my career in the intelligence community, which started, like I said, in 2000, 2003 or thereabouts. And and uh, lasted until um, 2016 when I uh, relocated to the UK and uh, sort of joined the think tank uh, world, uh, working at Chatham House and uh, for the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, right. you mentioned. But um, like with all kind of careers, mine was sort of um, you know, moved around a bit. So in the intelligence community, I, I, as you mentioned, went to the National Intelligence Council, which for folks that don't know, that sort of coordinates and oversees um, Community intelligence community level analysis on on issues around the intelligence community. So they produce what are called, uh, amongst other things, the national intelligence estimates, which are sort of the intelligence community consensus on on big issues of the day. Um, and those tend to be headline making. You know, people will remember their sort of, you know, um, you know, big documents on you know, Russian interference in elections or the Iran nuclear program, you know, when the intelligence community comes together sort of with one voice, those are coordinated in, and facilitated and sort of published by the National Intelligence Council. Uh, and then, you know, I went to the Defense Intelligence Agency. Again, always kind of at this point, I was really, uh, you know, focused on Nigeria. I was sort of developing mm-hmm. expertise. And so went to the Defense Intelligence Agency and then finally ended up at the State Department. And their sort of small intelligence uh, office, which, uh, right. you know, their bureau, which again was great because it was almost like coming back to Oxford. It was sort of a small, um, a bit of an ivory tower type of, uh, existence. There were 10 of us. I was probably the only person in the, in the office without a PhD, um, really smart, uh, experts on, on their issues. And we worked very closely with, uh, policymakers within the State Department. So, as an intelligence anim- analyst, it was kind of your dream job because you're—it's a very bo- right. boutique um, uh, setup, and and basically, I was allowed to sort of write write about what I thought was important, rather than uh, you know what people wanted me to write on, and and that suited me quite well. So, yeah, no, thanks for sharing. That's very a uh, fascinating background. So, we're really looking forward to hearing a. Uh, what you have to say on Nigeria. So let's move on to that. Um, I know Nigeria just had a election recently in 2019. As you mentioned, they're a very uh, quickly growing power within Africa. So can you talk a little bit about the general political climate, political system in Nigeria? Sure. You know, for those of your listeners that aren't really familiar with sort of the inner workings of Nigerian politics, and, and to be honest, unless you're Nigerian or, or you know, um, somewhat of a Nigerian politics aficionado like me, you might not know all the, the various ins and outs of it. Uh, you know, Nigeria has a federal system of government which 
um, while not exactly like the U.S., is is highly similar. So its constitution, 1999 constitution, uh, you know, was was basically outlined a structure which is very similar to that of the United States. So while the U.S. has 50 states, Nigeria has 36. Well, you know, uh, the U.S. has a, f- a capital territory in the form of Washington D.C. Um, Nigeria has a separately administered capital territory in the form of Abuja, uh, which is in the center of the country. It was sort of a purpose-built capital, and kind of like Washington D.C. was put there in order to, um, you know, straddle geopolitical boundaries within the country, right? Sort of north and north and south. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that was certainly the same in uh, in the case of you know Washington D.C. and also places like Brazil or uh, Canberra in Australia. You know these these uh, purposely cited capitals where geography um, and the ability to expand and build build uh, new government ministries and and lay out new street maps and so forth played played a part mm-hmm. as well. So. Um, and uh, below that, you know, Nigeria is divided into 774 local government areas, which, you know, notionally are, are there to provide sort of basic services to the population. Um, it elects a president, very powerful president, every four years. And also every four years, it elects um, a Senate, you know, senators, uh, three from each state. You know, there are only two from each American state, but Nigerians <laughs> one up to them and, you know... <laughs> Right. Why settle for only two when you can have three? Um, but the irony of it is, is actually those current senatorial districts, a lot of them are are closely aligned to the old uh, colonial district boundaries. And a lot of those colonial district boundaries were sort of laid out along the lines of, of sub-ethnic identity, ethnic and sub-ethnic identities within the country. So there is sort of a method to the madness a little bit. Um, and then, mm-hmm. um, like in the U.S., they have, you know, um, a National Assembly with 360 representatives, and those are apportioned by population. Um, there's a challenge there. We're hearing a lot about the census in the U.S., you know, being subject to all sorts of shenanigans right now. Um, Nigeria should be a cautionary tale. It hasn't really had a good census um, in, in living memory, and uh, the census exercise is there. Um, the last one, which was held in 2006, uh, supposed to be held every 10 years, but um, they're fraught with all sorts of um, corruption and horse trading and and politicking because um, they play heavily into another feature of the Nigerian political system, which is wealth distribution. So Nigeria has kind of a system of public finance whereby oil revenues and other sort of revenue, federal level revenues all come into one central pot. And then every month, the 36 uh, states basically get a, a share, an allocation of those revenues according to a sort of very complicated formula that takes into account all sorts of factors, size, population, how much tax revenue the, that state is generating itself. And, and basically they walk away kind of with a, with a check. And um, for most states, with the exception of maybe Lagos, which people may have heard of, you know, Lagos is Nigeria's commercial capital. Um, it's one of the world's few mega cities, right? It has 20 million people at least, maybe mm-hmm. maybe more. Um, like I said, there hasn't been a good census, so no one really knows. Um, it's, uh, you know, Lagos kind of does generate a lot of its own revenue internally, doesn't rely on these sort of checks cut from the uh, right. from the federal government every month. Um, but what this means is that 
Nigerian public finances are, you know, uh, obviously subject to the ups and downs of the economy like any country's public finances are, but it's compounded by the federal government's dependence on oil revenues and petroleum and, you know, all the different forms, you know, gas revenues for, um, you know, for public, public funding. And so mm-hmm. when oil prices go down, you know, uh, there's, there's an immediate sort of panic and tightening of the public purse in Nigeria. And um, what it's also meant is that over the years, right, Nigeria has succumbed to, you know, what people refer to as Dutch disease, right, over-dependence on a single um, commodity, in the case of Nigeria Petroleum. Um, and, um, you know, this sort of boom bust cycle. So when times are good and oil prices are high, like they were sort of in, you know, um, the 2010 to maybe 2014 timeframe, um, Nigerian politicians sort of spend like drunken sailors. And when, uh, the, uh, the belt tightens, you know, oil prices crash like they did sort of in the wake of the 2008 financial meltdown or in, in the wake of the coronavirus crisis. You know, Nigerian politicians uh, often sort of borrow hand over fist in order to basically, you, you know, keep their uh, sort of trickle-down system solvent until the next boom comes along. Um, the problem has been is there hasn't really been much of a boom again since 2014. I mean, oil prices have kind of uh, wavered right between middling to poor. And so uh, mm-hmm. Nigeria, both at the federal and state level, has, has dipped deeper and deeper into, into debt. Um, so, you know, that's sort of the broad, like almost like how at the sort of 50,000, you know, meter level does Nigerian, right. the Nigerian state work. Um, but of course, uh, you know, when it comes to sort of the, the personal side of things, right, the, the power players, you know, there's a whole nother complex set of layers. Um, so as you mentioned in 2019, Nigeria had a presidential election, um, in which, uh, former military ruler Muhammadu Buhari was reelected. Uh, he had been elected in 2015 in a fairly historic election where an incumbent, good luck, Jonathan lost, um, largely based on the fact that he had actually underperformed um, both in a sort of governing sense and also in a political sense because he had mismanaged his party to the degree that large parts of it sort of split off and went into opposition and that ultimately uh, is what, what tipped the balance against him. Um, uh-huh. You know, Nigerian... Nigeria has two main political parties, you know, the All Progressives Congress, which right now is the ruling party, and the opposition party, the People's Democratic Party, which had been in power um, from 1999 to 2015, so basically the period after the end of military rule. Um, For folks who don't know, you know, Nigeria, um, you know, from independence in 1960 until 1999, uh, most of that period was spent under military rule. And there were sort of some democratic transitions, um, you know, several which sort of didn't last very long. And um, and really since 1999, right, the country has had the longest um, period of democracy. And we can probably use that in like inverted quotation marks, right? Uh, because it's really, right. um, you know, Nigeria's had some okay elections and some really poor and heavily rigged elections. 2007 really being the sort of uh, where Nigeria hit bottom in terms of its democracy. Um, 
And um, and unfortunately, when it comes to Nigeria's democratic trajectory, we're sort of in a bit of a downswing right now again. Um, Nigerian elections are 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 trending negatively in terms of the, you know, their their freeness and fairness and and how violent and uh, you know legitimate you know uh, or you know, illegitimate that they seem on the surface. Right. Would you say the transition of power from Good Luck Jonathan's party to uh, Buhari was a fairly peaceful and smooth transition of power, or how did the dynamics of that play out? Yeah, that's a good, really good question. I mean, uh, yes, it was. And um, in a way, you know, looking at, you know, Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa's democratic trajectory, right, writ large, you know, Nigeria's 2015 election, you know, was a sort of a hopeful moment. Um, like I said, I view it in terms of the fact that in the run-up to the election, you know, large chunks of the ruling party joined the opposition and then, you know, that opposition party became the ruling party. So the thing to remember about Nigerian political parties is that they don't um, they don't really have any ideological basis. And mm-hmm. so um, and they share a lot of the same DNA, meaning that politicians freely um, switch sides, you know, sometimes, you know, within very short periods of time based on, you know, their uh, you know, sort of elite jockeying and sort of the realignment of federal, state, and local political networks, right? Because mm-hmm. something I meant to mention earlier when we were just talking about sort of Nigeria at the at the uh, at the sort of topmost level is, you know, Nigerian politics is really shaped by these um, competing networks of of national and state level elites, right? And I guess that's true, and obviously in most most countries. But the, right. the point is, is that parties, you know, party affiliation is is isn't really very um, uh, meaningful or very uh, decisive in terms of, you know, these these elections. And so um, that, however, as you mentioned, kind of mitigates against a lot of violence. Right. I mean, be, between parties. I mean, it, there's a lot of violence around election time. But, you know, when politicians are on the losing side in an election, their first thought is not, oh, how do I create chaos and havoc and prevent the new government from governing, as in many other countries, it, or how to be an effective opposition. Their their first inclination is, how do I join the sort of winning side? You know, how do I get back into power? How do I, how do I get back on this gravy train that I have inadvertently right. fallen off of? Um, and Nigerian politics to a certain extent is like a game of musical chairs because there aren't seats for everybody. So some people have, there have to be winners and losers. Um, but over time, you know, uh, many uh, elites will sort of leverage, whether it be their, you know, financial muscle, um, often created by holding power before and having used that to divert public funds into their private hands that then they can use as a sort of political war chest or use to to uh, fuel a political machine or um, physical muscle, right? Thugs, you know, from their local community, people who are loyal to them for a variety of reasons um, that they can bring to bear to, you know, to, to help uh, win an election. So, so politicians, you know, in the Nigerian parlance are always trying to remain relevant you know, so 
you know, sort of an underhanded insult, uh, you know, that one politi- Nigerian politician might make to another one who's who's on the outs is saying, oh, he's just doing this, that or the other in order to try to remain relevant. Um, and and that's that I think tells you a lot about um, sort of elite mentalities. And it also reveals sort of a simple fact, which is that Nigerian elites, Nigerian politicians, the the overwhelming majority of them, again, it's it's not it's about winning. It's about staying in power. It's not about public service. It's not about policy ideas. It's not about ideology. Um, and so they're incredibly pragmatic in in some ways, right? In the way in which politicians and and even you know first world democracies, right, are often blinded or constrained by by their ideological bents or or, or their sort of a personal uh, policy agendas and so forth. You know, most Nigerian politicians, you know, couldn't couldn't care less about about those things. And so that makes them actually, you know, somewhat pragmatic when it comes to um, policy development, because it's not the the thing that's foremost in their in their mind. It's you know they're really thinking about how do I how do I stay in power? How do I um, take my position in power and um, turn it into this sort of social and political ca- and financial capital that I can you know uh, spread around within my power base in order to keep me here? Uh, and we can talk a little bit more about that and sort of some of the techniques that are used when we talk about sort of the average day in the life of a Nigerian politician. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. That was a quite a thorough uh, breakdown. I just wanted to go back to something you said a little bit earlier about violence during election times. Can you elaborate a bit more on what form this violence takes, what the purpose is, say blackmailing people into voting a certain way is just inciting people to riot or yeah. Can you just elaborate and touch on the violence? Sure. Um, well, it sort of stems from sort of a basic principle, I guess, of, of in any electoral democracy, right, which is that you want to run up the vote where your base is, and you want to suppress the vote uh, in, in an opponent's, you know, base. Uh, or in areas where it's closely contested, right, you want to somehow be able to distinguish between opposition supporters and, and your supporters and, and make sure, you know, yours get to the polls and the other others do not. So election rigging in Nigeria is extremely sort of complex and multifaceted. It's not just a simple matter of, you know, beating someone over the head with a two by four and and then stealing a ballot box, right? It's much more, it's much more sophisticated and there, and there are different levels at which it happens, right? There's sort of, you know, manipulation that happens, you know, uh, in in terms of, you know, bribing senior figures at the electoral commission. And then there are, you know, um, people handing out sort of grubby wads of notes to voters sort of at the back of the, the queue um, to, to vote on Election Day and, and everything in between. So, you know, again, there's a you know, one could do multiple PhDs just writing about the different sort of forms of, of rigging and, and electoral rigging and 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 how those those change over time. But, yeah, violence is, is definitely one of them. Um, scaring, you know, taking your thugs, going to an area where your opponent is strong and sort of intimidating voters. Um, you have to remember that voting in Nigeria is sort of a day-long affair. Um, you know, even with all the waits, you know, the long lines that you see in parts of the United States on election day and so forth, which again are serious impediments to democracy as well. But Nigerians are, are used to sort of queuing uh, half a day or a whole day in order to 
in order to vote because the process is very um, sort of laborious and um, and deliberately made difficult uh, and, and very procedural. So, um, and, you know, many Nigerians, let's face it, everyday Nigerians sort of live subsistence existences, you know, they can't take a day off from working or farming or trading or whatever they're doing to sort of stand in a queue. So, so often politicians sort of incentivize this, you know, in various ways. And, and we can, we can talk about that sort of what in Nigerian political parlance is called, you know, handing out stomach infrastructure, you know, Nigerian politicians joke that their constituents want infrastructure, but what they really want is stomach infrastructure. So bags of rice, you know, donations of food, you know, money in order to in order to vote for them uh, around election time. And so those are the things that incentivize voters and get them to come out to the poll. And then likewise, you know, violence, um, both in terms of violence against voters, um, you know, uh, assassinating or injuring or intimidating your your opponents. Um, uh, you know that that definitely happens. That happens sort of often in the advance in well into the run up to election day and also in the aftermath. And then the most important thing, which I haven't really mentioned, is how for the ruling party, uh, whether it be at the state or federal level, because remember, you know, obviously the federal government is controlled by one party at a time, but the different states of Nigeria, right? Some of them are controlled by the ruling party and some of them are controlled by the opposition party. And even though the military and police are federally controlled, if you are the military or police commander in a particular state, let's say a state that's controlled by the opposition party, you know, you sort of have already developed a fairly, uh, what's the word, you know, cordial, cooperative, mutually beneficial relationship uh, you know, often where, you know, significant amounts of money are, are changing hands with the state governor. Um, and so you, although you are sort of nom- nominally um, beholden to the, the federal government and the ruling party at that level, you also um, are are sometimes willing to look the other way or do favors for your your state governor with who, whom you've developed a, a close relationship and other state and local level figures that that you may be involved with. So what that makes for is a very complicated um, sort of electoral violence equation on election day where you have, you know, party thugs, you might have local ethnic militias, you might have um, the local police and military, sometimes who are working, you know, for, you know, for opposite politicians, uh, all playing into the mix. And what that has done is the, it's created the sort of militarization and atmosphere of fear in the run up to and on election day, um, that, that ultimately is really bad for democracy in Nigeria. And, you know, that, that equation, that situation has not really, um, you know, gotten better since 1999, you know, oscillates, you know, from, uh, from, like I said, sort of okay to bad, but it, it has never really, um, stabilized in a sort of, you know, constructive way. Right. Interesting. So talking about since 1999, I think you started your career at the Marines in the early 2000s, is that right? Yeah, so just before Nigeria's 2003 election. So that was my first sort of Nigerian election that I had really observed, you know, very, very, very closely. Um, so mm-hmm. that that was instructive. 
Um, that election really had significant weaknesses, as I mentioned. You know, the weaknesses that we right. observed then really, you know, sort of multiplied in 2007. Um, the 2015 election, although, you know, from a partisan standpoint, many Nigerians would would disagree. You know, Nigerians who believe Buhari, you know, uh, didn't deserve to be elected or what have you, would, you know, would disagree with, with this statement. But I think the 2015 election, you know, all in all, was it was probably Nigeria's freest and fair, fairest. Um, there were aspects of it that actually were you're not as good as in 2011, and really that's down to um, the the then elect national electoral commissioner, um, the chairman of the national election commission, um, Atahiro Jega, uh, who who really um, you know did an outstanding job. Unfortunately, he only supervised those those two elections before having to to step aside and retire. Um, but but what it also illustrated, right, is that the the management capacity, the sort of the reformist vision of national electoral commissioners, uh, you know, in countries, especially African countries, you know, is really um, an important ingredient towards the inst- you know the institutionalization of democracy uh, in in those countries. Right. Interesting. Um... On the same note, something I've heard a lot about uh, when hearing discussions of Nigerian politics is the godfather system. Mm. So do you think you can talk a little bit more about what that is and how that works? Sure. Godfatherism. Yeah, it's sort of, um, you know, uh, I conjures up images of, you know, the godfather movies. Right. And it's it's actually not that (laughs) it's actually not that far off. I mean, I think um, it would be amazing if someday someday someone remade you know, a film, you know, the Godfather films using, uh, using Nigerian actors in a, in a Nigerian contact context, maybe that's like a good Netflix, uh, you know, idea, but, um, but yeah, Godfatherism is really, is really, um, a big feature of Nigerian politics. And part of that is, you know, a function of the fact that, you know, Nigerian politics is so heavily based on patronage. Um, it's become uh, such an expensive pursuit, and I, you know, uh, and when it comes to, you know, how a Nigerian politician sort of spends his day, you know, a lot of it is both sort of accumulating and distributing patronage, and um, you know, Godfatherism, you know, is really heavily shaped by, you know, sort of term limits that exist in, you know, many countries, right, where state governors can run for two terms um, uh, or presidents can run for two terms, but they they can't run for more. So they're always looking, especially governors are looking to sort of uh, anoint successors, godsons uh, or goddaughters, um, uh, but create sort of a stable of those politicians who who have risen up through the ranks sort of based on that that patronage. And um, and it also, I think, illustrates how powerful, you know, governors and presidents are within the Nigerian system, you know, um, especially with regard to giving people sort of government appointments. And in the Nigerian context, appointments are, are a big deal, you know, because they can lift sort of someone out of you know, the lower middle class and into, you know, the the highest degree of elites because of the sort of, oppor- you know, the, the self-enrichment opportunities that exist uh, 
you know, wherever mm-hmm. someone might be appoint, you know, whatever job someone might be appointed into. And, um, and I think, you know, uh, you know, this gives, and also, you know, godsons play another important, uh, you know, role, which is to sort of protect the interests of their godfather, um, after that person has left office. And that's become increasingly important in the era, right, of sort of stepped up anti-corruption, um, law enforcement by agencies such as the Economic and Financial Crimes Commission, which was stood up in 2003 and, and has uh, fairly aggressively, albeit somewhat selectively, pursued um, former senior officials really accused of, of gross acts of corruption. Um, so, so corruption in Nigeria, like anywhere, sort of exists on a spectrum. You know, it's in the eye of the beholder. A lot of things which you or I might view as improper or corrupt are considered, you know, um, fairly innocuous or, or, or a common type of perk of a particular position. Right. Um, but then, you know, even in the Nigerian context, there, there are sort of actions and, you know, levels of embezzlement and, and corruption that even by, you know, Nigerian political elite standards are considered pretty outrageous. And those are the ones that tend to get, you know, the most attention from the Economic and Financial Crimes uh, Commission. So, so yeah, godfatherism is, is um, you know, a really strong feature of the Nigerian political system. And, and I think a good way to think of it is that it's taking place sort of not only at the federal level, but at the um, at the state and local level as well, where people are seeking to create what they call political structures, you know, these sort of like machines reminiscent of sort of New York in the 19th century, right, that are going to turn out votes, that are going to provide, you know, where you have sort of a slate of loyalists who you can bring into government with you who are going to be incredibly grateful um, for you having provided them those opportunities and also who may be generating wealth on your behalf whether it through directly stealing or sort of providing lucrative contracts to your cronies and so forth. Um, and unfortunately, you know, Nigeria, that's how the Nigerian system just runs. There's, there's really that, that political culture is so um, deeply embedded that um, it's been very hard to reform or shake loose. And to be honest, you know, that type of reform really starts at the top. And I think people looked to President Buhari, going back to your question about sort of that election in, in 2015 and his re-election in 2019, you know, Buhari's sort of big, uh, the big big element of his platform uh, in coming, uh, coming to power in that election was that he was going to sort of shake up the system. He was going to, you know, it, was, you know, it wasn't going to be business as usual. You know, his, his anti-corruption zeal was going to uh, sort of clean out the, uh, you know, sort of the stables, as it were. And um, I think Nigerians broadly have been really disappointed in the sense that, you know, once he, once he got into power, he saw it more as sort of crossing a finish line than, than bursting out of starting gates. And a lot of that had to do with his poor health. But a lot of it just really had to do with the fact that that he felt he had been, you know, uh, unfairly kicked out of office um, back in 1985, when as a military ruler he was thrown out by a, by a coup by one of his his comrades, um, General Babangida at the time, and uh, he saw this as sort of like, you know. Um, 
returning to po- power and finishing out a, a you know time in office that was rightfully his. And uh, and unfortunately, he just hasn't delivered for Nigerians either sort of, you know, economically or in terms of changing the political culture or in terms of things like security in the country, which is really, really poor and has been you know, getting progressively worse over his tenure. Got it. Briefly, before we move on to the uh, day in the life of a Nigerian politician section, I noticed you mentioned goddaughters as well as godsons. So is there substantial female representation within Nigerian politics or is it mostly a male dominated arena? That's a great question. And it's one that is, is really important to, um, to highlight and discuss because Nigerian, you know, women as sort of, you know, looking across at the national level are, are actually really critical to, um, you know, success in the Nigerian political context. So, you know, uh, market women's association, you know, women voters all across the country really propel some of these politicians into power through their organizing capability and their sort of importance at the, at the grassroots level. The, the really sad or, you know, really kind of, um, confusing thing is that if the higher up the Nigerian political hierarchy, you look, the fewer and fewer women are there. And what we're seeing now is I think we've reached sort of a historical low in terms of female representation in the national legislature. Um, I would argue that maybe Nigerian uh, female judges are better represented in the judiciary. But again, I'm assuming, you know, I I haven't looked at the exact numbers, but I I suspect it's still, you know, uh, relatively low. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's sort of this tokenism approach on the part of the ruling parties. And so a great, a great book about this issue is a book written by Aisha Osori. Um, it's available, you know, in the, in the UK, it's available outside of Nigeria in the US, um, called Love Doesn't Win Elections. Um, and it's a, it's a basically sort of, you know, part political critique, part sort of campaign uh, diary of her attempt to sort of run for political office in Nigeria as a, as a woman. And the challenges and, you know, incredible sort of chauvinism that that existed um, in that system. So so that I would I would highly recommend to to your listeners. Um, yeah. So Nigeria, you know, an incredibly challenging environment for uh, for women to succeed politically. And and part of it is just the sort of the high stakes nature, financial nature of uh, Nigerian politics and how it's not about policy. It's not about ideas. It's about, you know, these big men, these Nigerian godfathers, as I mentioned, you know, um, creating these networks and using violence and intimidation and, you know, late night meetings and, uh, and things that, that frankly really, really turn off a lot of aspiring women politicians. Um, so in my book, you know, um, Nigeria, what everyone needs to know, I have a chapter on women in politics and I sort of discuss these issues and look at some of the archetypes of women in Nigerian politics, sort of their, you know, the ones that you do see tend to be these incredibly, you know, brave sort of trailblazers, you know, but also women who are, have strong connections to sort of political dynasties. So for example, you know, uh, Obasanjo's daughter, 
or you know the uh, former Senate president uh, Bukola Saraki, his sister. You know these these women sort of have broken through, but they've really done so uh, on the basis of their you know connection to to very powerful men, and um, it's very very um, it's very difficult for them to create sort of a political center of gravity all their own. Right. Okay. Uh, thank you for that. So it still seems like it's very much a boys club. Uh, but moving on to what I personally think is the most exciting part of this podcast. <laughs> uh, let's talk about a day in the life of the average Nigerian politician. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah this, is, this is my favorite, I guess, you know, window into you know, the reality of Nigerian politics. And, and I'd preface this by saying that, you know, I guess like in most countries, you know, there's sort of political terminology or political parlance that, that is sort of unique to that country and sort of very idiosyncratic in terms of describing what goes on. But I would say no more so than in, in Nigeria, where you have all these, you know, funny little colloquialisms that describe, uh, you know, how how different aspects of the of the the political terrain and political behaviors in the in the country and so i'll try to touch on a on a few of those um so this draws on uh, as you know sort of a chapter uh in my in my book uh nigeria what everyone needs to know um from oxford university press which is sort of meant to be sort of a primer and and i i viewed this as sort of a good prism or lens with which to to um talk about some of these really interesting, funny, and political behaviors. So as I kind of alluded to, you know, during our the earlier part of our chat, you know, Nigerian politicians, even though they're really focused on self-aggrandizement and self-enrichment and sort of clinging on to power for the most part, you know, they work really hard. You know, they're not they're not lazy bones. You know, they they work really hard and tirelessly to stay in this position. So while while I want people to keep in mind sort of rigging and, and power structures and, and sort of the money-driven nature of Nigerian politics, I think they should also keep in mind that it's very highly competitive and very sort of dog-eat-dog in, in terms of staying in power. So, you know, the Nigerian political landscape, right, is littered with incumbents who sort of uh, took their power for granted or rested on their laurels when they should have been uh, hustling that little bit harder and enjoying a little less, you know, spreading a little more wealth around rather than enjoying it themselves. So, you know, politicians want to to have a chance at re-election. You know, they really need to sort of juggle these different demands of their day job, which notionally, I guess, is making policy and governing. But ultimately, that sort of takes a very small percentage of their bandwidth, so to speak. In reality, they spend a lot of time basically trying to keep their political structure alive and um, and and growing and and vibrant both by spreading around money and then also getting out and basically pressing the flesh and communicating with people you know so they're constantly on the phone taking phone calls even if it's just a simple hello how are you from you know uh, you know distant political acquaintances of theirs um, uh, courtesy visits um, to to important people again at the local and and state and national level, and then these sort of late night strategy sessions or or sort of 
um, you know, smoke-filled room type discussions, which which happen amongst Nigerian, primarily male political elites that happen at sort of two, three o'clock in the morning, uh, where they get together and sort of scheme and, and plot and, and make decisions. So, you know, unless Nigerian politicians are are delivering a steady stream of public goods in this way, you know, um, or spreading around private patronage, you know, whether it be paying for their constituent school fees, you know, dishing out wedding gifts, paying people's medical bills, or or delivering that stomach infrastructure that I described um, mm-hmm. to voters. You know, basically, very quickly, they're, the people that, you know, their constituents will start saying that they are not performing uh, or they are not generous, in quotation marks. And so these are terms that you'll see, you know, people use to describe... Um, government officials who who they don't feel are attuned to their needs. Um, they there's a critique that constituents will make about their officials who sort of have, have forgotten them or ignored them, saying that they're Abuja politicians, right? In other words, they they hang out in the capital and don't come home, you know. Whereas a compliment is saying someone is a grassroots politician someone who comes home and, you know, kind of has gifts to hang out or maybe hand out or maybe uh, is providing jobs in government to the, the local, you know, um, gradu- you know, graduates and, and people from the local area. So, you know, from that standpoint, you know, a significant chunk of any Nigerian politician's day is spent thinking about you know, or hustling to sort of basically counter those perceptions and and cement his support because cementing your support among your sort of, you know, among your power base is is not something you can kind of do once and forget about doing in, until the run up to the next election. It's something that you have to constantly be be working on in the sort of four years in between the time that you're elected and the time that you want to you want to run again and so that's that's really really significant point to make i mean the other thing we mentioned is you know earlier is that you know a nigerian politician needs to be spending a significant chunk of his day thinking about sort of his his financial wherewithal so you know Nigerian elections are very, very expensive. You know, a presidential election campaign costs obviously in the hundreds of millions of dollars, um, but a a governorship campaign might cost in the tens of millions of dollars just because of the the stakes involved and the the access to money that you will have on the other end um, when you're basically responsible for the public purse of of a whole state. So even at the lowest level of the sort of political hierarchy, so for example, these um, the state legislature, right? Each state, like in the United States, has a state legislature. In Nigeria, um, you know, you could spend, you know, forty, fifty, a hundred thousand dollars, depending on where you are, running for one of those sort of state house of assembly seats. Um, so. For the average, you know, candidate, average person coming into that 
situation, you know, wanting to run for office, you have to have significant financial resources behind you, not just to sort of spend on your campaign, but also, you know, basically kick back to whatever political party that you are, are, you know, affiliated with, because they're going to demand sort of a significant amount, significant amounts of money from you as a candidate in order to sort of run under their banner. So unlike in, you know, the U.S., for example, right, where politicians and political parties sort of fundraise from a much wider swath of businesses and individuals and obviously wealthy individuals, in Nigeria, really fundraising, the vast majority of funds are raised from, you know, mysterious sources, shall we say, (laughs) right? Um, candidates will claim to be self-funding themselves, right, um, with their own, with their own money. Um, so there's a lot of, I guess, like cognitive dissonance or, you know, what have you about the the source of of this wealth. So again, you know, day in the life of a Nigerian politician, you need to really be thinking about how you are how you're obtaining this money. You know, what your revenue streams are, licit and illicit potentially. And also this is where godfatherism comes in because, you know, godfathers are a significant source of finance for political campaigns as are government contractors and so forth, who will then expect repayment either directly in cash or in the form of, you know, patronage opportunities, uh, appointments to what are considered, quote, juicy positions. So that's a great Nigerian political word. You'll see, um, uh, you know, political commentators referring to certain uh, committee chairmanships in the National Assembly as juicy, you know, committees, uh, committee chairmen, and and that refers basically in not so veiled code to the um, self enrichment opportunities that those committee chairmanships offer those individuals. Um, so. So, the, like I said, the financial considerations are, are key. So once you're elected as a Nigerian politician, you know, there is an enormous demand signal coming from your supporters, your constituents, your the people within your political structure to reward them for their support. So I think it's really important for everyone to realize just... You know, when you think about Nigerian politics, you think, oh, these politicians are just sort of corrupt. They're up there, you know, sort of um, uh, with their hands in the cookie jar, so to speak, stealing for themselves. But in reality, and that, and that to a certain extent is true. But what is also true is there's a significant amount of demand-driven corruption. So again, you know, people feeling and putting pressure on their elected officials or appointees from their area to say, hey, you're, you're in government now. It's your turn to eat, so to speak. So, you know, uh, make hay while the sun shines and, you know, provide these benefits to us, either legitimate or illegitimate, while you're in power. Because, you know, there's going to come a time which you are going to be out of power uh, or there's no one from our particular ethnic or sub-ethnic group in a lucrative position and that will sort of be the lean season for us you know whereas um you know right now with you in power this is a time for us to sort of uh have our fair share 
of the so-called national cake, in quotation marks. You know, we talked earlier about the distribution of, of oil revenues. Again, in Nigerian political parlance, the, those oil revenues, those public funds are referred to as the national cake. So you'll often see, you know, uh, commentators or politicians talking about how best to divide up the national cake rather than how best to, you know, appropriate and spend responsibly, you know, public funds. Um, so the other key thing that, you know, as a politician you should do if you're smart is you should assuage your former opponents by, quote unquote, carrying them along. Uh, you know, so you'll often hear, hear politicians refer to the need to carry people along, which again is about, you know, neutralizing opposition to your future political aspirations. Um, and that's, that's something that, again, as a politician, you're going to really want to focus on. Um, you know, there might be reasons at one of those late night sessions that you as a politician are, are uh, you know, a part of where you realize it's in your best interest to switch political parties. Maybe the writing is on the wall that, you know, in the next election, your party is is going to lose. So you begin to um, basically send out feelers to the opposition party, see if there's a soft landing, quote unquote, for you in that, in that other party when you lose power. And changing parties in Nigerian parlance is known as decamping or cross-carpeting, referring to right in a legislative chamber where the two sides are separated by a, you know, uh, a a carpet, you know, um, and uh, where you where you cross that carpet to go sit on the on the other party's benches. So, um, you know, these are all things which as a politician, you're going to be be getting involved in. And if you're lucky enough to be a very senior politician, you know, and your job is not so much to try to kiss up to your, you know, to godfathers and people who can further your political career, but rather to cultivate a base of, um, you know, uh, support, you know, cultivate your own godchildren, so to speak, you know, you will be, you will be doing that. You'll be trying to um, to assemble sort of a, uh, a cadre of people, build a political structure that, that will support you in the long run and maybe propel you to a higher office, um, including the presidency. Uh, you know, ultimately, that's, that's the sort of the goal of, of any, you know, uh, Nigerian politician, you know, worth his salt is to, is to climb the greasy pole to the very top. So you've we've clearly outlined this kind of very complex, nuanced system with pressures from all sides. But I want to finish up by asking you what you think this means for international organizations taking on development initiatives and for anyone in the international, either like private or public sector community looking to work on development in Nigeria or contribute to Nigeria somehow. What does this political climate mean for them? Yeah, it obviously kind of makes it very difficult to advance those interests in ways in which, um, you know, you might be able to in other countries where sort of maybe policy considerations are foremost and where you have um, a sort of 
professional class of sort of wonky policymakers, you know, as well as sort of more conventional retail politicians. Um, like I said, there, there are pluses and minuses. Um, it is extraordinarily difficult for the international community to engage in Nigeria. You know, Nigeria is such an important country and it has cordial relationships with U.S. and U.K. policymakers. Um, there's, you know, huge Nigerian diasporas in the U.S. and U.K. Um, and, you know, Nigeria maintains productive, right, diplomatic relations with a lot of countries, including within Africa. But there's also a strong sense amongst Nigerian policymakers and leaders that there's sort of a Nigerian way of doing things and that they, they shouldn't, you know, be dictated to by, by other countries. So when it comes to, uh, you know, and there are a lot of really good examples that are, are sort of evident recently, you know, international criticism about Nigeria's human rights record, for example, or about, you know, the way in which it conducts elections, um, you know, international misgivings about the way, you know, sort of Nigeria's protectionist economic policies, you know, the fact that it's for, for many, many, many months now has closed its borders um, you know, to, to sort of regional trade. You know, there are a lot of different e issues that that the international community has tried to engage with Nigeria on, and for the most part, it's you know not met with a lot of traction. And um, so, and there are obviously a variety variety of reasons for that, not least of which is the political culture, but also. Um, some very sort of outdated and, you know, what you could call almost like antediluvian sort of um, mindset about, about um, you know, economic, you know, macroeconomic management and, you know, fiscal, you know, and monetary policy, which are, are really, really problematic. So in, in many ways, right, Nigeria is a, is a really good case study of, right, you know, how not to run a country effectively. Um, and how to um, sort of get the least bang for your buck in terms of, you know, infrastructure development and, and so forth. Um, but, you know, there are also areas where, you know, inter international, you know, policymakers, especially on things like environmental issues, you know, where they do get some traction, you know, with, with Nigerian policymakers. Unfortunately, a lot of it is sort of personality dependent. And, uh, you know, you may have a good minister in a particular portfolio that becomes sort of the darling of the international community or, or the business community in the terms that they find that person's competent and easy to work with and so forth. And then, you know, as in, you know, uh, many countries, right, that, that individual isn't going to be on that portfolio forever. And so the time in which it takes to really sort of realize gains is, um, is longer than often these individuals stay in the, in those public offices. So yeah, so part of the thing, you know, part of what I do now as a as a fellow at Chatham House or you know, at the Carnegie Endowment and is very similar to what I did in government, which was to try to essentially, you know, advise and counsel policymakers on how best to 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 go about this. And unfortunately, you know, there're no real easy easy answers. And I think that, you know, Part of that is a reflection of the fact that, you know, Nigeria is sort of its own political ecosystem. It's uh, it's sort of its own center of gravity in in the international space, 
you know, we talked about sort of the superlatives which apply to Nigeria in terms of it being the largest economy in Africa and and um, its you know its demographic trajectories, which are all very very you know significant. And I think my sort of final pitch, right, to your listeners who may not necessarily have Nigeria on their radar every day of the week, is to is to put it there, you know, because it's going to be in our lifetimes, you know, increasingly central in international narratives. May not be central in a good way. Uh, in that, you know, we may still be talking about the challenges that face Nigeria, you know, in twenty, thirty, forty, fifty years, but. The thing we can't lose sight of is that you know Nigeria has enormous potential, you know, human economic um, potential. Um, you know, the Nigerian diaspora is already you know doing incredible things. Um, you know, and um, and so are you know Nigerians you know in Nigeria. But but there are also these you know incredibly. Uh, big obstacles that the country will need to overcome, and and right now I think you know we all need to to understand them better in order to see how those uh, can be surmounted. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us, Matthew. I know that was a very insightful discussion for me, and I'm sure many of our listeners also gained a great deal from that. It was a pleasure to hear from you. Well, thanks for having me on. It's it's great to be reconnected to Oxford in, in such a uh, constructive way. So thank you. Of course. Thank you to all those tuning in. And for anyone interested in learning more, Matthew's book, Nigeria, What Everyone Needs to Know, was published by the Oxford University Press in 2018. And he also suggests a, reuse, a reissued classic, Democracy and Pre-Benzo Politics in Nigeria, by Richard A. Joseph, which is published in 1987 and reprinted in 2014. Well, that's all for today. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in, and we really hope you'll join us next week.